from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. Van Halen. Always gotta have Van Halen. I mean, Van Halen was my all-time favorite. This week, a very special Metal Mayhem podcast. Brought to you by the letters V and H. As Vernomatic and Metal Forever Mark sit down with Greg Renoff, author of two definitive Van Halen books. Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. And Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. They talk in-studio history of Van Halen, hidden Van Halen stories, and more. And now, here are your hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Forever Mark. This is the Vernomatic, and we're here live with Greg Renoff, the author of the new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. He's the co-author of this book, and he's also the author of the now famous Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Party Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Greg, welcome to Metal Mayhem. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. I'm looking forward to the convo. Of course, of course. Uh, tonight, uh, there's a lot of topics we could go, a lot of different roads. We we could talk Van Halen for hours, but we're going to condense this into a little bit of the history of Ted Templeman, how you got to know him and get to the point of uh, doing a co-author book with him. We're going to dive right into some of the Van Halen tidbits from the classic six albums from the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. and touch on the uh, Van Halen Rising book. So, sure. um, without, uh, I want to introduce you to my uh, co-host, uh, Metal Forever Mark. Welcome. Thanks, Vermatic. It's been a little while, so nice to be back in the studio with you. Actually, live person versus uh, Zoom or Skype. So, and uh, Greg, welcome. We're, we're excited to talk with you. Uh, Vernomatic's been talking about you and your books. Um, I don't know, last couple of months, pretty much full on. He's a huge Van Halen uh, fan, as you know by now. And um, so even though, you know, we can have that debate whether or not Van Halen's metal or not, but we'll, we'll say that for later. <laughs> Just well, well according to the Van Halen Rising, they saved heavy metal. Uh, they so. did, right. It's right in the intro. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Ted, why don't you get us up to speed on the history of you and Ted Templeman, a little bio on Ted's history, and we'll get right into the Van Halen nuggets. Well, uh well, uh, I worked on the Van Halen Rising book for several years, and at the end of that process of writing the book, about the last year or so, I had done something like 200 interviews, and it was everyone from promoters back in Pasadena to guys and gals who went to high school with either Van Halen brothers or with Dave, um, former band members like Mark Stone. I had interviewed all these people, and kind of at that point, I wanted to try to go for the you know, top of the food chain, so to speak. And I uh, was able to find someone who was able to put me in touch with Ted Templeman, which was not easy, actually. He doesn't have a website. He's, you know, he's kind of a low, very low-profile person in terms of his life now. And uh, I did an interview with him for the book. And then uh, about, uh, you know, sometime right before the book came out, he, he uh, reached out and wanted to know if he could get a copy of the book. And I said, of course. And once he got a hold of the book and read it, he told me how much he liked it and that I really got it. I understood what uh, his perspective was and I really expressed what he was trying to get across about Van Halen on the book. And so I was really flattered by that, obviously. And uh, what ended up happening after that was I told a friend of mine, um, a guy who actually lives in Los Angeles and uh, had seen Van Halen in the clubs and was kind of one of the people that really, uh, from the very beginning, his name's Mike Kelly, had really um, 
encouraged me to go forward with this Van Halen book idea. And uh, he said, why don't you ask Ted to come out to the book signing in Pasadena? And I was like, oh, I could never do that. And he goes, why Why not? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I just, I could, uh, it's Ted Templeman. He goes, well, he just could, just could say no. And I was like, okay. And I asked and uh, he said, yeah, I'll come out and I'll, I'll sign books. And uh, I was actually very surprised that he said yes. I later learned, interestingly enough, that Ted had... Uh, applied for a job at this bookstore back in 1970 when he was thinking about leaving the, the record industry. So I, you know, I, I maybe suspect that's part of what kind of intrigued him was that this was a bookstore that he had actually gone to when he was lived in, he lived in Pasadena in the basically from the late sixties up through about the early eighties and knew the, the, the town really, really well. And, and uh, I suspect that might've been part of the, the thing too, like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. Go back to this bookstore. And, and so uh, he did the book signing and uh, you know, I got to know Ted after that, we started talking more in email and phone calls and cause I had never really, I mean, I had like two phone conversations with them. 10 or 12 emails and then I met him in person. So I didn't really, you know, know him, know him. And we started talking after that, after we spent some time together at Romans, you know, at the table signing books. And we talked a little bit afterwards and, uh, you know, eventually I pitched the idea of him to him of doing a book. And uh, that's how it kind of started. From the start, was the Templeman book, was the end result what you started? Well, no. I mean, I also say I had to, I had to convince Ted to do the book. I mean, I want to, you know, it wasn't as if Ted was, was... <laughs> was like, oh, finally, someone's going to write a book about me. Actually, he was very uh, reticent and kind of hesitant to do the book. And I had to sort of talk him into it. Um, you know, I just basically had to, to give him a vision for what I wanted for the book. And, you know, it was it was kind of a, it was definitely a, a process in doing it. Um, and I think I think, to be honest with you, he's not a person who enjoys the spotlight. I mean, one of the things he talked about in the book over and over again, and I may have put it in a couple of times, but excuse me, I should say in the interviews, we talked about this over and over again when I interviewed him for the book, was this idea that, you know, he, he sees himself as a lighting man. He sees himself as a director, someone who, you know, kind of, he wants the, the people um, on the record or in front of the camera, so to speak, to get the credit, the people on stage. He wants, you know, it's about the artists. It's about the performers. And so, he you know, he was not uh, super... Uh, immediately comfortable with the idea of doing a biography about him. And so I had to kind of, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of work up to the, you know, this book, you know, you've, you've had an interesting life. I mean, he's not unaware of that, but I think, you know, I was like, people will be interested, I think. And I think it's, it's a, an amazing story when I really started hearing about his life. And so, um, you know, then we started working through that. So to answer the second question about whether it's how it started is how it finished, you know, I don't, think that Ted envisioned it exactly the way it came out, meaning that I'm not sure he thought it was going to be basically like Ted's perspective all the way through. I think he thought of it more initially as like a music history with uh, with Ted being a central player and rather than basically being a story driven by Ted, which is really, you know, the only way as I work through it to kind of make it, I think, come to life and, and do justice to the story. So, you know, it was it was just a it's like any other creative creative process. It's, you know, you can start in one place and go, oh, it's going to be exactly like this. But after you work through something, whether it's putting on a play or writing a song or whatever it is, it sort of, it, it evolves. And so that sort of evolved more into sort of a straightforward bio of, of him. Let's pick it up in 71. And Ted's, at this point, he's working for Warner Brothers. And he started, uh, what was his first job? He was a, the tape uh, proofer. The, Tape listener, yeah. Yeah, and one of the first bands he discovered, if you will, was the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, so uh, Ted 
Ted's first job for Warner Brothers was, as you said, a tape listener. And that was just, it's somebody who was paid a very, very minimal salary. I think he said he was making like 50 bucks a week to just listen to tapes, just like it sounds like. You're just supposed to be a person who has good ears and your job is to sit and play tape after tape after tape after tape and listen and then basically try to separate the quality from the trash, basically. And that was his job. And he ended up getting a demo tape sent to him from up north, I think from San Jose. It was sent down. And it was a four or five song demo from this band called the Doobie Brothers. And Ted heard it and really was knocked out by a couple of the songs on the tape and really liked, particularly liked the harmonies. He had, he was a guy who liked a lot of the 60s harmony stuff, like Moby Grape. Ted was in a band called Harper's Bazaar, did a lot of harmonies. And he really liked the two-part harmony that um, Pat Simmons and Tom Johnson did on this demo and liked liked the, some of the songs. And so... He brought it to his superiors and said, hey, look, I think this band is something going on. And he went up north with a couple of Warner Brothers executives, got to see the Doobies in a, in a biker bar. And Warner Brothers signed the band. And so when Ted had brought the tape, obviously he got some cred for that and was actually um, given the opportunity to co-produce. And that was one of the things that Ted really wanted to do. And the people at Warner Brothers knew that. And so they said, okay. You know what? You found this tape. You found this band. We'll give you a shot at kind of going and working in the studio with the band. Um, and I should say, Ted was already had been a musician, a working musician, and made some records for Warner Brothers. So he'd already done the the um, the studio sessions as a musician. This was his chance to get on the other side of the glass, behind the board, and now work with the band. Now with the Doobie Brothers, here's a funny little tidbit. Uh, this spring, I did a three part series about a local record store, and Paul Curcio. Yeah. Paul Curcio was uh, originally from up here in Rochester, New York, and he came full circle and opened a uh, recording studio in Rochester and ended up doing the first Metallica album here in town. And as I was doing research on Curcio, I was listening to the audible, audible book of Templeman. And I keep hearing this Paul Curcio name, and I'm like, that eh, can't be the same. And so be it. Did uh, Ted... Uh, out of curiosity, ever mentioned Paul, or he was just part of? Yeah, his that's team? the same. Yeah, that's the same. I mean, that was Paul was the guy who who brought the tape. So there were um, Marty and Bruce Cohn were brothers, and there was all Paul Curcio. Uh, Marty was the engineer. Paul owned the studio, and then Bruce ended up managing the Doobie Brothers. Kind of a long saga there, but yes, yeah. I mean, that was those were the guys who brought. The, in fact, if you look at the first Doobie Brothers records, they're listed. Uh, at least Paul is for sure listed as an executive producer on it, um, you know, because he was the one who got the tape to Warner Brothers, you know, from what from I don't think I don't think my recollection is that Ted ever met Paul face to face when the, de the demo was delivered. I think it was just mailed. But of course, after the record was made, Paul was the guy who had owned the studio. It's called Pacific Recorders. And that's where they did the first Doobie Brothers record at, at Paul's studio. So uh, he gets involved with the Doobies, uh, directs them in their career, did some work with Little Feet and some of the, uh, of course, the first Montrose album. And that's his first exposure to Sammy Hagar. Let's, uh, let's fast forward up to the 76, 77. And what was the first time he heard of Van Halen? Not seeing, but hearing. Yeah, so the first time he ever heard about Van Halen was in... January of 1977, uh, a gentleman by the name of Marshall Burl, 
who later went on to manage Rat and sure. was uh, a guy who was booking the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1977. Marshall had been also an agent. He'd been a booking agent um, and Ted had met him in the 60s, called Ted at Warner Brothers. At this point, Ted had uh, a number of hit records to his name. He'd done the Doobie Brothers records, as you mentioned, Little Feet, Carly Simon. So Ted was a, a hot producer he, and he called uh, Ted, Marshall did, and said, hey, I've got this band for you. They they do some stuff I think you might be really interested in. They got a really good guitar player and they do these these cool harmonies. Come check them out. And uh, Ted told me that the only reason why he bothered to go down and see this this band he'd never heard of, Van Halen, was because of Marshall, because he knew Marshall had been around quality. Marshall had, had booked the Beach Boys and basically he knew that Marshall had good ears and was not just some guy who was just calling up because at that point, uh, Ted wasn't going to clubs to watch bands. I mean, he was kind of beyond that with his career. He had, you know, obviously there was a roster of, of artists at the Warner Brothers who all wanted to work with him as sure, a house producer. Sure. And so when Marshall said, come on, really, you need to come down and see this. He said, okay, okay, I'll go. And uh, he, he went down to the Starwood Club on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood in February 1977 and saw Van Halen for the first time. So the first time he ever heard the name Van Halen was when Marshall Burrow called him some, you know, a few days before and said, there's going to be a, a uh, basically a show you should come see. So he goes down to the Whiskey, or uh, the Starwood, sees the mm -hmm. show, and went back the next night with Mo Austin and signed the band. Correct. Yep. So at this point, was this this, uh, uh, February 77, uh, was were you Yeah, Febru yep, February 1977. So that would have been, you know, kind of a preliminary, like basically like a, you know, a promissory note, so to speak. Like, you know, basically you, you know, we're, we intend to sign it with Warner Brothers. The deal was worked out over the next few weeks with all the, you know, the contracts and all the other stuff you can imagine that goes along with it. But yeah, basically they wanted to make sure that they had some sort of commitment from Van Halen immediately because Ted thought that once other labels started to think, oh, Warner Brothers is interested, what, you know, basically what did we miss? Because I think the point that I want to make to people is that at that point, People knew about Van Halen. Um, Ted might not have known, but there had been a number of labels that had kind of seen Van Halen. You know, they weren't, they were playing on the strip. They had been around for a while and they weren't a totally unknown quantity. Um, and so at that point, when Warner Brothers is going to go ahead and sign them or was sniffing around, basically, Ted said to me that he really thought uh, that it was important to try to get those guys locked up because he didn't want them to slip away to Mercury or another label because suddenly someone says, oh, well, if Warner Brothers is interested, we must have missed the missed the, missed the, uh, the point on Van Halen. Uh, Greg, I want to compliment you because with the Templeman book, it's sort of a, a part two from the Van Halen Rising because in the Van Halen Rising book, the detail and the attention to detail chronicles this entire story of what Van Halen was going through. The involvement with Gene Simmons in 76. Mm -hmm. uh, all the demos and just the massiveness that Van Halen established in the mid-70s in uh, Pasadena. It's documented uh, the thousands of people, keg parties, the putting on their own shows at Pasadena Civic Center. So for the listeners that are going to go out and get the Van Halen Rising, that part of the Van Halen story is covered in complete detail. So when Templeman, they signed the band, they're on Warner Brothers, how quick did they get into the, not so much the studio, but start rehearsing uh, at the point they are um, doing a lot of the rehearsing in Dave's father's basement? Where did they go from there in 77? Yeah, so Ted uh, started watching their rehearsals. He actually took them into the to uh, Sunset Sound to do a demo. 
I mean, I never exactly figured out exactly when. It was something like six or so, maybe eight weeks after they did the um, the deal, the initial deal at the Starwood. Ted got them in the studio and they recorded a 25 song demo that's leaked out. Um, it's on YouTube. People can hear it. And he basically wanted them to run through their entire repertoire of originals. And uh, from what I understand, it was basically you know they talked to the guys and said okay what's the what's the songs you guys like best and kind of went through and, and kind of put that all together on a tape to have a work a basically a work tape so that ted could start going over it with the guys and being like okay this song's better than this song and really hear everything through studio quality and so they do that and then at that time too ted was as you mentioned was going and uh spending time with the band in dave's basement the thing that ted observed to me and i mentioned in the book is that at that time ted was living in pasadena and he was only living you know, maybe like two miles from the Van Halen brothers and maybe a mile from Dave at most. I mean, he was, it was just this weird thing where they all lived very, very close in, in, yeah. uh, in that area in Pasadena. So um, he said that, you know, it was very easy for him, even if he was you know working at the studio in Hollywood late night and Van Halen was rehearsing, he could just stop over to Dave's house and, you know, midnight and watch, watch an hour or two of them rehearsing, talk to those guys and have a very close connection with him, you know, in some ways, unlike maybe an artist who's like based in New York is going to come out and do an album in LA with Ted, where he could really spend a lot more one-on-one -on -one time with those guys on a regular basis leading up to the making of the record. How much of the sound, the Van Halen sound, did Ted help cultivate? Because there was, I just, through my research, I found out that two things. One, Ed Van Halen really didn't start doing a lot of the hammer-ons and pull-offs up until maybe a year before the Van Halen 1 sessions in the studio. And David Lee Roth never really had that howl that Ted really liked. You know, I think, you know, I think Ted was, how would I put it? You know, Ted wanted to give credit to those guys. I mean, I think Ted would just say, like, I was just there basically like the coach, like to be like, mm -hmm. that's good, do more of that. You know, uh, I think he wants to give them credit for being the band that was so transformative for everybody who heard the band and how great they were. Uh, you know, and that said, I'll say for Ted, if you compare the Gene Simmons demo to the Van Halen demo, which mm. was done basically, the Gene demo was done in October, 1976, November, excuse me, November, 1976. And then Ted, again, was in the studio with them, maybe March, maybe April to do this, the demo. And then when you listen to the first album, which was recorded, you know, approximately eight months after the Gene demo, I mean, I think you can really hear the difference um, in so many ways, basically, you know, how the songs are constructed and how the guitar was put down. I mean, I think one of the things that it's really was really telling about Ted's impact is if you listen to the way that Ted really wanted to showcase just the Van, Ed Van Halen guitar, a lot of times just one guitar track. You know, some of the songs have overdubs, obviously, but a lot of the songs on the first record, it's just one guitar track where it just basically it's the, the rhythm part through the verses and the choruses to the solo. There's no rhythm guitar. It's just him soloing live. Go back to the rhythm part and go through where, you know, Ed uh, was more asked to overdub by Gene. And there was much more of a, I don't know, much more of a, I felt like a tentative playing by Ed on the, um, the, on the, on the demo. Whereas I think, you know, give Ted credit for really letting Ed loose, like letting, basically encouraging Ed to do things like, you know, do eruption and put it on the record. Something that Ed was like, well, what do you mean you want to put that on the record? And he's <laughs> like, we're putting this on the record, you know, um, just, you know, basically showcasing the greatness of Ed Van Halen and saying, this is what the band's about in part, this great guitar playing rather than sort of, I don't know. I think Gene was more, 
controlled in what he tried to do with the songs, maybe made them sound much more traditional 70s hard rock, whereas Ted, I felt like, really tried to take them into a, a leap forward. And I always say this, and uh, with all respect to Gene, and in all seriousness, is that Gene only had a few weeks with those, I mean, two weeks with those guys, where Ted had, you know, had a lot more time to kind of mull it over. So, you know, um, you got you to, uh, I think, cut Gene a little bit of slack where he didn't have, you know, he didn't know those guys all that well. Basically, he was in the studio with them within, like, hours. Yeah, I supposedly did the first demos with those guys within 24 hours of first seeing them at a club. So, you know, Gene just for wanted to knock it out because he wanted to get back on the road. So, for what it's worth, you know, that's part of the, I think, the issue, too, is that Gene didn't really get to know those guys the way Ted did. Um, Greg, uh, you've probably been asked this question a dozen or more times at least by now, but um, when you talked with Ted and he was uh, first around the Van Halen guys, uh, was he like right away, like he knew they had something special to this band and they were going to be huge, or was it like, hey, here's a young band that's got a ton of potential, they just need a lot of work and we can make them into something pretty cool, uh, or was it, hey, we got to grab one of these bands because maybe this rock, metal, L.A. scene starting to happen did he give you a sense to kind of what what those early impressions were like that hit him right away? Yeah, I mean, it definitely wasn't the latter. I mean, I don't think I don't think Ted was thinking like, okay, you know, Hard Rock's going to come back. I don't think that was what he was thinking. I think it was much more of that he thought, in particular, this guitar player is so extraordinary, and the musical talent is so unusual if people hear it in the right context, they're going to appreciate it. And Ted really spent a lot of time talking to me about how when he heard Van Halen, and again, it's kind of a weird analogy for people, I didn't really quite get it at first either. It reminded him of bebop jazz. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, when you would listen to bebop jazz, it would, you know, it'd be, um, you know, a drum, piano, bass, uh, or saxophone and a bass. And then, 
you know, the, the there would be this very stripped down sound where the saxophone solos, the Charlie Parker or whoever it was who was soloing um, or the trumpet solos would be kind of laid bare and it would just be this incredible playing that would kind of grab you. And I think that one of the things he really thought about Ed was that if you if you really highlighted him, people would kind of get it in the same way. And I'm not sure I'm doing total justice the way Ted explained it to me, but that was what he was he that's what he heard because he grew up as a jazz guy. Um, but the other thing, too, I think he, he really thought the band had just great songs and were great on stage live. I mean, he talked about how he saw them in Pasadena playing the Pasadena Civic in October 1977. So this would have been after Van Halen 1 is recorded, but before the albums come out. And he talked about how amazing it was that the crowd was was into these songs that nobody had heard on a record before. Now, of course, people in Pasadena had heard the songs because they grew up with Van Halen and they were fans, but he was like kind of blown away by that, be going, man, they don't even have a record yet, and they're already these fans are going crazy for this band. The die laughing and, sessions. Yeah, he thought, right, exactly. He thought like this is just the, the energy in the room was so, just so undeniable. So, you know, I think in the last thing I would say about that in terms of thinking about the, the band was that you know, Ted never said to me, well, I knew it was going to be a platinum seller or, I, you know, I knew these guys were headed to be to be famous. I think he really thought, though, that if they got a got out there and their song got on the radio, that they would they would have a, a career, you know, that they would get going. I mean, you know, maybe something, um, you know, maybe something along the lines a little bit better than the Doobie Brothers where they would kind of go out of the gate and get going. But, you know, the record was great. And I think the thing is that I'm sure Ted knew how great the record was, but there are lots of great records that come out, as we all know, that you're like, oh man, I can't believe people didn't really connect with that. They just didn't, you know, we all have records like that in our collection. We're like, oh, that's great, you know, but it didn't become a massive um, hit. But he, you know, he believed in those guys and he he was somebody at Warner Brothers who much more than people, other people at the label, really thought these guys deserve a, deserve a plug. We deserve to really push these guys because they're good, they're talented. We're talking with Greg Renoff, the author of the Ted Templeman book, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, and the Van Halen Rising book. Uh, so the Van Halen one gets recorded. They go on tour. They tour the world extensively for about 10 months. They take a week off. They're back in the studio for Van Halen 2. What's going on with that? The, uh, yeah, the turnaround was really quick for those guys. I mean, that was kind of the... the the standard at the time was about an album a year. And so Van Halen toured in 1978 from basically from the first week in March all the way through the first week in December. You know, they were home a couple of times, obviously. They didn't, you know, they wasn't playing shows every single night. But that was the the uh, the workload that those guys had. They had, a, you know, about a week off at home. And then they went to Sunset Sound and recorded Van Halen 2. The, uh, you know, the thing was that there were a lot of songs on... The demo left. I mean, I think the, one of the things that I always think about when the Van Halen demo is that they were still pulling songs off that all the way up to 1984. Um, you know, so basically it it provided a, a reservoir of quality material stretching six records. And that didn't mean that they didn't write new songs, as you mentioned, something like, um, you know, Light Up the Sky was a song that Ed had written, was a new, was a new 
a new song. Um, Dance the Night Away was yeah. a song that was a new was a new song as well. But something like Out of Love, which didn't end up on the it wasn't done on the demo actually, but that's an older song. Um, Somebody Get Me a Doctor was an older song, meaning that it was it predated uh, the first Van Halen record. Uh, DOA. So there was kind of a mixture of these of these originals that the band had written before um, they signed with Warner Brothers all the way up through um, some newer some newer tunes that they uh, had written on the road or put together subsequently. Or rework songs, Beautiful Girls sure. coming yep. back from, um, what was that? Uh, Bring on the Girls. Bring on the Girls and Spanish Fly was that. What was the story behind Spanish Fly? Ed was at a party that Ted had and he picked up a flamingo guitar. <laughs> yeah, if people go on my Twitter, um, I have a picture of that guitar on my Twitter, it's kind of it's uh, it was really kind of cool. I was at one of the first times I got to interview Ted. I went to his house and <laughs> it was like this guitar was sitting in the corner, and I was like, "Huh?" I was like, "Hey, that's a, a cool Spanish guitar." He goes, "Oh yeah, that's the one that Ed played. You know, that's the one that Ed played." So Ted had bought a couple of guitars in Europe on his uh, on a trip he took to Europe in the early '60s, and uh, yeah, it was sitting on you know sitting leaning on the couch at Ed uh, at Ted's house, and this would have been New Year's Eve of 1978 to '79, and uh, Ted asked Ed to play it, and he goes, "Can you play those hammer-ons with the tapping on acoustic too?" <laughs> and it goes, "Yeah, you know, like why not?" And he did it, and Ted said he was just like, "Fuck!" He's like, "This guy is just incredible. It's yeah. just amazing." And he's like, "We're gonna do this. We're gonna do the uh, acoustic." You know, we'll do an acoustic solo for you on the next record, and they did that. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, that was at, that was uh, at Ted's house. He was, uh, he was, yeah, it was, it was weird. And you know, I picked it up and held the guitar, and one of the strings is broken, and and I said, to, Ted said to me, he goes, "That's probably the same set of strings." <laughs> it's yeah. like you know, I never because it was just like something he just kept around the house. He didn't play it, right? You know, it was just like it was like a thing he just kept around. It's like yeah. that's probably the same set of strings. So I like touched them to have a little bit of the Ed Van Halen mojo, and then like didn't touch it anymore. You know, I didn't want to. You don't want to. You want to break another string or something like that. So I didn't play it, but it was like it was cool. So back in the day, uh, Van Halen was recording these albums in you know a week, ten days, fourteen days. They go on tour. They tour the world again. Now fast forward. Now it's the turn of the decade 1980 women and children first first uh album with all originals except for digging in the past on in a simple rhyme was there anything else on that album that had uh roots from the demo days yeah the fools i mean fools was something that's interesting fools was something that dated way back to uh, and take your whiskey home they dated back to like 1974 those were songs that interestingly enough were almost i think they'd almost abandoned them as part of the repertoire by 1977 and for whatever reason decided to revisit them and uh they were done for for women and children first and again that was the same you know the same deal it was you know a quick turnaround they they, they toured for almost all of 19 you know into october 1979 they came back and then uh did women and children first and uh this is also the first album where Ed Van Halen plays keyboards. There's a electric piano on Cradle Rock, mm -hmm. which is you know kind of a little hard to hear. People, you know, people listen to headphones, you know it. But if you just hear it in the car, you know, in the car on the stereo driving around or whatever, you may not be able to hear it too clearly. But yeah, there's electric piano on there. Now, when they did that live, obviously Mike Anthony did the um, keyboards, so that, yeah. that was sort of interesting. So the band tours the world, Women and Children First, and it was at the end of the Women and Children First tour where Eddie meets Valerie down in Louisiana. And in my opinion, and maybe you'll agree with me, but the dynamics of the band started changing. 
It's the 80s. Things are a little different. Ed's growing up a little bit. The Fair Warning album's on the horizon. What, what did Ted have to say about any of this, or what's your interpretation? You know, well, I mean, I think I think the thing that Ted always talked about was with Valerie was that he thought it was kind of messed up that some of the guys in the band were not, uh, what would I say, enthusiastic about the fact that this guy had fallen in love with a woman and wanted to marry her. And, you know, Ted actually was kind of, to be honest with you, pissed off about that, that the, that the uh, some of the guys in the band, um, Alex and Dave particularly, from what I understand, were kind of like, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, maybe getting, trying to get Ed to sort of think about it, you know, don't, don't jump into this thing. And, you know, I, obviously, I'm not saying that Ted felt like he should like, you know, tell Ed, you know, marry her tomorrow or anything like that. But that, you know, basically that somebody would suggest that, hey, the band is more important than maybe, you know, your, your, your life partner, you know, that type of thing where, um, you know, I, I think Ted took that to be kind of uh, maybe, a, you know, a bridge too far until he, in terms of what he thought Ed should have to endure and, and said to Ed, um, in Sunset Sound, in a in a break on a break one day, that if you want to quit Van Halen, you know I'll go with you. I'll 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 quit too. Um, you know these guys. This is this isn't right. Basically, that that some of the guys are you know trying to pressure you to basically break it off with Valerie. And uh, you know again, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. Mm-hmm. I yeah, wasn't sure. there. Um, I mean, I don't know what the what the context of the conversation was, but that's basically the way Ted explained it. That he just said to him, "Look, look, if you're if you're miserable from this." And it's making you miserable in Van Halen. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll go and we'll do something else. We'll do a Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen solo album. And again, I'm just using that as an example. But that's what yeah. Ted said. He would back. I'll back you to the hill, basically. You know, I'm not going to let. Um, I'm not going to stand back and let those guys. Um, you know, put you in a position where you feel like you have to choose between the, you know, a career in a band or your potential wife. Because you look at the timeline, and it's hard for people listeners now to relate to this but back then this is it's uh spring they get married in spring of 1981 right it's three in three years they went from playing clubs to you know top of the world and they're growing up and it's album tour album tour album tour and there's really no break and that's a lot of activity in a three hour three year period i personally think that Ed started, like I mentioned before, he started maturing and he started probably thinking, you know, this is my band and there's a lot of dissentment The no one's supporting him. They're even his own brother and Dave, you know how Dave was. Where did this lead to when Diver Down came around? Yeah, I mean, Diver Down to me, and that's the kind of the way I wrote it up in the in the book based on my conversations with Ted. I mean, and again, I'm trying to tell the story. I tried to like really spend a lot more time focused on Diver Down than I did on fair warning in terms of the problems that started in the band because that's was something that for Ted was an unsatisfying experience. So one of the things he talked to me a lot about was that uh, you know the initial thing that happened after the fair warning tour so this would have been the end of 1981 was that Van Halen the band wanted to do a single just to do a 45 just to kind of put it out there presumably 
you know, Jess Tedka thought, he thought that, well, maybe those guys thought that would kind of give them some breathing room that, you know, they've been on the road. They're all, you know, they're burned out. Like, oh, we'll put out the single and everyone will like it. And then we can basically buy ourselves four or five months before we have to go do a record. Well, um, and the other thing they were doing, they wanted to put out a video. So MTV is in its infancy mm-hmm. and they had come up with this idea to do this, this video based on Pretty Woman. And so Ted goes in the studio and he's not really hip about the song. He's like, well, whatever. If you guys would do Pretty Woman, I guess we can do it. And, uh, you know, Ted talked about in the book how he thought it was kind of in his mind backwards that the focus was really about like, oh, we're going to do this video. and We'll do the song like, you know, basically like to Ted. The video should be like the absolute afterthought. Like we're not thinking about videos. We're just going to, you know, if we're going to record a, a cover song, it should be about the song, not about like, oh, this would make a funny video or whatever those guys were, were thinking. And so the song comes out. It's a hit. And this would have been in January 1982. It starts getting played on the radio. MTV bans the video for what it's worth. You know, that always <laughs> helped for publicity. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of humorous now, obviously, because the video is so, like, you know, cartoonish. And so it's yeah. like they banned that. It's like, you know, are you kidding? And uh, but then what happens is that Warner Brothers, the basically the president of Warner Brothers, the people above Ted, start going, hey, uh, Ted, you're banned. You know, they're, they're, they're hot. Let's get an album from them. And so this becomes this thing that management from Van Halen and the rest of the the rest of the people at Warner Brothers are saying you know hey we need a record and they have to rush in the studio to do a record fast because Van Halen has a, a hit single and you want to ride that wave of publicity going oh they've got you know you don't want to like yeah. let that that single disappear and then two months later have something else come out people are like oh another something else for Van Halen you want they wanted to kind of make it all of one piece suddenly when that was not the plan so they had to rush and do this record and there was a lot of you know a lot of uh i would say a lot of complications in that process and also a lot of compromises that were made that were dissatisfying to ted in some ways or or i gave more to the point probably dissatisfying to ed where ed maybe didn't express that really clearly to ted didn't say i don't like this idea or i don't want to do this probably because ted uh, Ed understood they were just trying to finish the record at the time. It wasn't like you could be like, well, let's stop the presses here and spend three weeks trying to fix this. It was they had to literally do it as fast as possible. That was basically the way Ted described it. It had to be done, you know, an insane pace to get it out there. If they had such a huge back catalog of go to undeveloped songs that ended right. up coming later on the House of Pains and whatnot, how come they didn't put some of those on there? Well, I presume. There's a couple things going on. Number one, with Dancing in the Street, the Martha and the Vandella song, that I know was by design to try to put a hit single on the Diver Down record. Meaning when the Diver Down record appeared in record stores in April or whenever, I think April it came out, uh, Pretty Woman had already run its course or would have already run its course. So usually when a record comes out, there's the lead single, and the and of course, you know, a week later, the actual 33 and a third record was in the store. Well, Pretty Woman had been out for, for three, four months already, so they wanted a second, or Ted particularly would have wanted another song in there that you can go to radio and go, here, here's another, here's another Van Halen single, and that's one of the reasons why um, Dancing in the Street, which was was really, you know, meant to be kind of a, a radio-friendly song. Going out around the world 
Um, that said, the way Ted described it is that all the stuff he liked to do in the past, they had always done, which was that, okay, we're going to make a record. We're going to go in the basement for four or five days, meaning they were going to meet down in the basement for whatever, a week or whatever, and go over the, and rehearse and, and go, okay, what do you guys got? You know, Ted would be like, mm, I don't like this one, or I like this one. Let's do this one and kind of put the records together. There was no time to do that for Diver Down. So that's part of the reason why Where Have All the Good Times Gone was, you know, that's kind of a, you don't even have to think really. Like they just, they just had to like sharpen up the arrangement. They'd done it in the clubs for years. And so, you know, something like, you know, maybe like a, a House of Pain, you know, they would have had to rehearse it and then basically polish it up to where it was, a you know, basically something that was worthy of release in 1982 rather than just going, oh, we this is the way we did it in 1977. Just like you mentioned with you know beautiful girls, you know bring on the girls. They they, they were they were, they did that. He said that it was there was literally no almost no time for that. They you know they had to go in the studio right away um, and to start to go to go and do this stuff. So things like you know Cathedral, which is an instrumental, was something that Ed had had worked up had done on the um, on previous tours. He'd done it on the Fair Warning tour. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Happy Trails was from the demo. They had done that on the demo. Um, you know, Full Bug would be a song that it presumably te- uh, Ed and Alex, those guys had written on the road because they don't think that one ever had surfaced before. You know, um, Hang Em High is a reworking of that. So that maybe that was one that they really could, they would do. They just didn't have time to do the type of rehearsal, Ted said, that they would normally do. So it was very slapdash and, you know, it just got to get a 30 minute record out you know that was what the idea was just it was actually like, like 29 minutes yeah, 29 and minutes another thing that was going on these albums were short and the um 82 tour wasn't that long the tour started getting longer and now they didn't have a break like they 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 were looking for their break so they had to do the album quickly get out on the road it was a huge production but that really uh only went to the end of the year at this time, it turned out to be the last album they recorded over at Sunset Sound. Spring of 83, they get the call from the people from the US Festival, and they're offered this huge amount of money to do the US Festival. Well, I think, you know, it's one of the things that, that helped make the making of 1984 so long, the album. Uh, they... I mean, Ed has talked about this in interviews, and Ted talked about it. Basically, they had they they had started work on the new Van Halen record up at fifty one fifty Ed's new studio, and then this offer came in to do this concert. And so, the you know at that point, if I remember correctly, they had basically gotten jump pretty together, but then they had to stop work on the Van Halen album, which would be nineteen eighty four, and then spend six weeks prepping for this huge concert. Then after it was over, Ed and, excuse me, Don Landy as engineer and Alex in particular spent a lot, and Pete Angelo spent a lot of time working on the video to put together the, the Showtime video clips. They had to redo the vocals for Dave and they kind of edited it together. So there was there was basically all of this stuff, you know, Ed basically said it was like a short tour's worth of work for basically one two and a half hour show. So there was all this stuff that kind of interrupted the, the workflow up there um, at 5150. Now, in honor of the religious people handing out pamphlets outside here, is there anybody stoned here this evening? I think. Yeah. You realize there's about three hundred thousand people here tonight. Yeah. I think. 
and we all came to celebrate sex, drugs, and rock and roll! You know, I watched, I've been listening to that video or audio for years and watched the video. Uh, that always gets a bad rap. They said the band was really hammered and it was a bad performance. I didn't think, I've, I've heard worse and seen worse from them. I didn't think it was that bad. I, you know, I think it's all, I think, you know, I think in the light of what it was, I mean, you can imagine it was like a weekend long party. I mean, I think, oh, that, yeah. you know, it was like, you know, to me, I, I really like that show because I always imagine that's like a, you know, it was like the biggest backyard party they ever played. They were, you know, playing to a Southern California crowd outdoors yeah. in the summertime. And, you know, it was it was kind of like a giant party. So I always take it in that spirit. And, uh, you know, it was a massively successful event for those for Van Halen. Um, I know the, the promoter lost money and all that other stuff. But, you know, without a doubt, it was it was a triumphant performance for those guys to be the highest paid artist um, in Southern California at a show that has what two, you know quarter of a million people there it was it was a huge landmark for them and one of the greatest uh, performances of their career and to uh, educate my uh, co-host over here I think uh, they did headline heavy metal day not new wave day not new wave day your boys yeah. Judas Priest was on the bill yeah. Triumph Ozzy Motley Crue think Quiet Riot Quiet Riot yep. Yep. Scorpions yep and uh, so they do the US Festival, they get locked in 5150, and at this point, Don Landy, the longtime engineer, and Ed really start bonding. And in the book, the Ted Templeman book, the, he mentions that there is a point where he felt, I, I don't want to speak for him myself, but the impression I got that he felt the bond sort of slipping away is that correct yeah i mean i think yeah i mean i think that's i think that's fair to say i think you know uh ted in working with him on the book really wanted to emphasize how important don landy was to his career in all sincerity not like a oh i just want to like you know pile on the compliments on this guy because i whatever he's a friend of mine you know he really talked about it Every time we talked, he's mentioned it. You know, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, pretty much every time we had a conversation over 30 minutes, he'd talk about, oh, Don, you know, it was amazing what Don could do. Don did all the stuff that made the record sound so good. And so, you know, I think it was a situation where Ed and Don got on sort of the same wavelength in a way that maybe hadn't happened before. I mean, Don had always been a guy, according to Ted, who bonded with guitar players. So Lowell George of Little Feet, Ronnie Montrose, and go down the list there. Ted always talked about that was one of the reasons of what made Don such a great engineer for rock music, particularly guitar-driven rock music, was that he just had this way of like getting on the on the same mindset as the guitar players. And, and Don and Ed became buddies, in part because I understand that Don was the, the point person for building the studio in Ed's backyard. Don was the guy who wired it. Um, Don wasn't the only guy who worked on it, but he was really, you know, Ed's eyes and ears, so to speak, in terms of like, oh, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're going to do. This why should we do this? And kind of like walked him through that stuff. So they had spent a lot of time together. And, uh, you know, I think I think part of it was just this issue of um, Dave and Ted tended to agree more on things as well. And so you can imagine that when the tension is rising between Dave and Ed and increasing, Ted and Dave probably got lumped in together 
as kind of a as a you know basically a pair that was trying to you know uh, uh, dissuade Ed and Don from doing what what they wanted to do with the record. And I think that's sort of what happened along with a bunch of substances and other stuff that obviously didn't help things as well in terms of communication. Um, yeah, and certainly, um, you know, Ted definitely felt that he was being um, sidelined, so to speak. I mean, I think that's that's a fact. A part of um, the the whole correlation between uh, the Diver Down sessions, Ed wasn't really happy with the direction it went, and now he has the ability to record at his house. And the right. structure of Sunset Studios wasn't there. And there was points in the book where Ted was talking about he'd show up and either he wasn't, he, you know, he didn't get in there or Don or Don and Ed were there all night. Just the, the structure wasn't going on there. And Eddie really wanted, he really stood behind Jump. And Dave wasn't into it, and Ted was a little... Ted liked the song, the impression I got, but he was a little worried about the direction and the interpretation that was putting out there. And at this point, Eddie, I felt, uh, was uh, growing a pair. Finally, he's like, hey, this band's my name, and I want to, in the direction it was going, uh, elaborate a little bit on the whole jump thing, because... After the fact, it's a va- it really is. If it's going to be pop, it's a fantastic pop song. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think I think you're pretty pretty on target. I think a lot of people have missed the point. You know, didn't read the book closely or kind of missed the point. It's like, you know, Ted talked about how he thought it was a good song and thought it was a great song and thought it was super cool, but didn't think it was a great song for Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And that was what he was worried about. You know, as the producer. He was trying to think about the reception. And look, I think in fairness to Ted, I know personally there are lots of people who heard Jump and were like, I hate, you know, what the f- happened to my band? Like basically <laughs> were really turned off by it. But on the other hand, Ed was right insofar as this is the music he liked and it made Van Halen four, three times as big as they were. You know, and so, and Ted recognizes both of those things are true. That for Ted, he was worried that it was going to be one of these career steps that you're like, you know, like, oh, like what were they thinking? Like, this is like, you know, I, I think we could point to a lot of bands where they push something in a direction that the fan base doesn't like, and it's, it alienates fans. And so I think that Ted, Ted thought that. The other thing I want to emphasize to you guys is that Ted told me, and I think if we think about it, I think he's making a good point, even if we can understand that Jump's a great song. He's like, look, you had this incredible band with this amazing lyricist, this front man who was the best at what he did. He was one of the best um, creative persons I've ever seen in a studio. I mean, David Lee Roth. And you have this guitar player who is unlike any other guitar player. He's like, you know, he's like the Mickey Mantle of guitar players. You know, he's the Michael Jordan of guitar players. Use whatever analogy you want. And he's like, then you're gonna say, stop doing what you're, you know, basically, I'm not, don't do what you're best at anymore. Do something you're just okay at, meaning keyboards. I mean, t- you know, basically Ted's point was that when Eddie Van Halen played the guitar, you immediately knew it was him. He's like a Hendrix. And then you're gonna have him play keyboards and you're like, well, okay, you're, you can play keyboards and you're, you're good at playing keyboards, but there's nothing special about how you play keyboards. You know, and that's kind of what Ted was getting at too. It's like, why would we dilute you know, we wouldn't tell Jimmy Hendrix to sit down and play the drums. You know, that's what I think that's what Ted would kind of say. It's like, you know, Jimmy can play the drums. He's good at playing drums, but it's Jimmy Hendrix. It's like you don't want to do yeah. anything that takes the guitar out of Jimmy Hendrix's hand. And I think that's what Ted was trying to, to get at, too. And it was, yeah, it was definitely something that um, 
Ted will go to great pains to say, look, you know, we went ahead and did the song. I, you know, I didn't veto the song. You know, I, you know, I, I didn't, I said, let's do the song. You like it? Let's do it. I'm not sure it's a good idea, but let's do it. So I think Ted wants to give himself, I think, fair credit for that to say, you know, it wasn't as if I was like stopping Eddie Van Halen from being creative at what he wanted to do. He's like, I was just had an opinion that differed. I differed about the appropriateness of making this song central to 1984. But, you know, as history shows, that's the way he was going. There was no stopping that trend. I mean, Ed was more and more keyboards and it was more and more mm-hmm. ballady. I don't know what, you know, what do you guys all know what I'm talking about? That's yeah. sort of like that more pop driven material. That's the way Ed was going. And so, you know, that's the, the, the saga of jump, but I think definitely it was a, it was a, uh, a landmark in a lot of ways, you know, it definitely was something that was, was, a uh, was a landmark recording for the band, but also it, it, it laid bare, you know, Roth didn't like, wasn't crazy about jump. Ted wasn't crazy about jump in terms of for Van Halen. And it just sort of laid bare that, that difference of opinion about Van Halen's direction. Well, the, the star of that song and Ted told the story in the book is uh, Roth. He, the lyrics and the interpretation that he, to tell the story, Greg, tell the story. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Ted will talk a lot about the fact that, and he kind of had to educate me on this. I'd be like, oh, Ed wrote this great song. And he's like, look, he's like, yes, Ed wrote the music. Ed wrote the musical parts of it. He's like, but you don't have a song without a melody and without lyrics. Like he'd say that to me all the time. And I was like, oh yeah, you got a point. He's like, we're not doing an instrument. He's like, we're not doing an instrumental record. So he's, he basically talked about how once Dave came up with this idea of, of a lyrical concept of jump, as this kind of anthem about, you know, hey, going for it and kind of taking a chance and, you know, basically being able to to have this message in the song that he thought everyone could relate to while also having this sort of pop idea of this, like, one word you can chant, jump, you know, and everyone can kind of, like, get behind. He said that was just brilliant. And so, you know, Tim, that's the other thing that I think Ted was kind of bittersweet about was that, you know, even though there was this conflict between those guys about the direction of the band, Ed and Dave were still able to work together and make this number one hit. You know, they were able to kind of like write this great lyric that everyone could sing along to. And Ed came up with all these amazing parts and the the catchy riff and the solo and the, you know, the whole thing. I mean, that's what I think that's one of the things that Ted's like, it's, it was amazing to see, to go from this thing when I was like, nah, you know, it's cool, whatever, to when it was finished, meaning the lyrics, the melody, the whole, every all the pieces were together. I think for Ted, when the lyrics were there, and the melody, the whole piece was put together with Dave and Ed's parts together. He said, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing. He said, it might ruin Van Halen. And he said, actually, you know, he said that in the book, I think it's like, I'm afraid it was going to be the end of Van Halen in terms of a, you know, a, uh, you know, as a, yeah. their, their direction as, a, you know, basically their direction If people really hate it. They like, don't accept it, but he's like, what? he thought it was a cool song. And I think that's one thing that I really, I think it's, it's, um, easy for people to misunderstand what Ted was trying to say. Like you can appreciate a song and say, I don't think it's a pro- was appropriate for this group at that moment in time. And that was Ted's opinion in the summer of 83 before the record came out, obviously. A couple of quick uh, clearing ups, uh, Van Halen rising. Uh, after you did the book, a couple things, did any people reach out and comment on any of the stories or situations that you presented? What would you do differently? And would you do a revision or an add-on chapter or two? Um, if you're talking about people in the band or, or I mean, you know, um, 
No, like people I, you know, that were there. Like oh yeah, I mean yeah, yeah I mean yeah, I got yeah, yeah. Yeah, there were there were people who you know there was always people who kind of um, you know didn't I didn't know about or I couldn't reach. There were a couple of of um, individuals who who uh, yeah, I mean I you know kind of wanted to talk to and they did whatever they weren't available. I couldn't reach them and you know that I think that's. Uh, kind of par for the course for this mm-hmm. type of thing anyone who's done a book like this is like oh, those people are like oh you know after the fact they're like i wish you you know wish i had done it or something like that um but you know in terms of an add-on chapter or something like that i mean i think you know uh there were certainly i i think a couple of areas of the book where you know i could do more i mean like you know at the point where i i there was so much stuff from the 78 tour there were so many cool stories i mean i almost had to um, you know, kind of do the highlights of the of the best stories for the tour where, you know, there were there were plenty of things that ended up happening to those guys where they, you know, you know, playing in um, arenas with Sabbath and sort of the whole um, the whole the basically the, the growth of their profile. I wish I could have, I could have done more than that. But at that point, you know, I didn't want to make the 1978 chapter like, you know, 150 pages long. But yeah. there was like, you know, obviously it's, it was I should say it was it was super well documented, obviously, because they're, you know, they're on the road. There's newspapers, there's radio interviews. There was a lot. There was more stuff. But, you know, you sort of want to give a little bit of balance to it where you don't uh, make the book sort of so top heavy at the end of the end of the book. Hey, Greg, you just reminded me of something. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Jim Florentine. I am. Okay, so we at uh, Vertimatic and I had a chance to interview him when he came through uh, Rochester last summer, and somehow we just started talking about rock, uh, you know, great shows that he remembers, and he somehow uh-huh. talked about that. So they, they toured with Sabbath, right, on that very yeah. first tour? Uh-huh. That was, okay. And he said that there was a rumor that Van Halen blew Black Sabbath off the stage at the Garden. What were your thoughts about, was that rumor out there at the time, or is it still out there? And it's been you know, known. I think, I think... You know, when I talk to people, obviously I talk to more Van Halen people, um, but I've talked to a lot of Sabbath fans. I mean, I think with with most people, they were going to say that Van Halen was surprising to them, like they're how good they were. Um, you know, they may say, well, Sabbath wasn't, you know, wasn't um, blown off the stage. But, I mean, even Ozzy has said that. So, I mean, I think that's the thing I always try to go back to is that, you know, um, I know that in Tony Iommi's book, he was seemed a little bit more defensive about it but i mean ozzy for years has said you know they blew us away we were just you know we were basically burned out we were done and we were just (laughs) you know bloated basically and we're like (laughs) these guys came out they you know they basically buried us yeah that they buried us night after night and you know i look i have no doubt that that uh van halen had bad nights but the thing i also try to point out to people is that which i think uh, may go not noticed is that van halen and Scott, did we lose him? Greg, are you back? I'm here. All right. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Hey, um, we know we're we're over the 60-minute mark, so we're, we're going to just go th- rapid fire through a couple of things. You still got a few more minutes for us? Of course. Okay. Sorry about that. John, did you want to add anything? And then Oh, just... so basi- no, basically um, the, the Sabbath thing. So Yeah. I don't even know how we got in that subject. Oh, okay, fine. Um... Anyway. Let All right. Um, so let me just do this one first, and then I got a couple to finish. So we had this uh, Metal Mayhem ROC mailbag. This was from one of our uh, listeners, Mike Lomenzo from New York City. Uh, his question is, did uh, Ted ever talk to you or mention um, plans for Van Halen to have a live album with David Lee Roth? You know, he never did. Uh, the thing that's interesting is that I asked him about that, and he just sort of, 
shrugged and was like, I don't remember ever talking about a live album. Yeah, I, I would have thought that that would have come up. And again, he may not remember. It may have been up, but he uh, discussed, but he never remembered it when I talked about it. Okay. There was probably no time to do a live album, you know? Yeah. And I guess the other question is, is there a uh, pro shot video of that uh, 81 Oakland promo clips um, that got out? I, you know, I believe there has to be. That's a bootleg, right? That No, it's the three promo videos <sighs> oh, that they okay. shot. Got it. You're, you're t- yeah, I mean, Ted Ted wasn't really, like, looped in on all that stuff in terms of, like, that type of uh, – in terms of what they were going to do with their, their video. But, yeah, I mean, I always I, – I am 100% confident there is um, – there's more – there's unreleased stuff sitting somewhere that uh, maybe one day I'll see the light of day. Um, but, yeah, you know – the thing is, it's. Uh, I think Van Halen, if it's proven anything over the last couple of decades, is that they're not exactly into archival releases. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath. They're not into anything. The, the reason I think that there's um, the company line was they, they said they only filmed three songs, which is BS because at the beginning of one of the clips, I saw the tour. They have the lit VH that came down during Ain't Talking About Love. Right. It's in one of the shots. And. Hey, who shoots three songs when you get the crew there? So, 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 Greg, um, having kind of replayed this whole Van Halen experience and having the interviews with the guys and getting to know Ted like you have, I mean, there's a lot of people that say that uh, the '80s, '70s, '80s genre was a really unique period of time, and all these big arena bands were born and what have you. I mean, in your viewpoint, do you think those days are kind of "quote unquote" over, or do you st- do you still think a band like a Van Halen or a Motley Crue or Metallica could still break and become a big arena band, or is just the landscape changed so much now that that's just not possible? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you talk to the average twenty-year-old, <laughs> the whole notion of arena rock doesn't exactly light them on fire. I mean, but that said, I mean, there's you know, there's um, I think there are bands that come along that are guitar-driven rock bands. I mean, one one band I like a lot is Blackberry Smoke. I mean, I don't think they're ever going to be able to play arenas, but they have a, a great following. Uh, they are, what, 10, 10 years into their career, six, seven albums into it, and, uh, you know, they're basically playing what people would call kind of heritage Southern rock, for lack, you know, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's totally fair to what they do. You know, so I think there's an audience you can you can cultivate. I know that um, they have plenty of younger fans, but yeah, I have, I have trouble believing that 10 years from now there's going to be some sort of um, turn. But you know, you know, it's it's uh, the thing about music is you never really can probably predict what's gonna what's gonna uh, take off and you know have a revival. But I I I, <laughs> I don't see it coming. And by the way, um, Vernon Maddox wearing the Van Halen Rising T-shirt. I want to read this quote. Nice. It says, "It says on there how a Southern California party band saved heavy metal." Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. What's the, that's what's the, the, what's that's the tag- basically the thesis of the, be- the book right <laughs> that's there. That's the title. So tell me, where does it, where does that tagline come from? Because then you know we're a heavy metal podcast and we love metal and we right. love everybody that loves metal loves Van Halen. So right. Not, so this was actually so, yeah, this was where- <laughs> this was actually really fun when the book came out because I got a lot of a lot of hate from a lot of people who were saying, you know, Van Halen's not a heavy metal band and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I would agree with that. Van Halen's not a heavy metal band. And I really went to Drake Payne's to try to explain in the book that if you look, for example, at a Cream magazine circa 1977 and they talk about heavy metal, it was like heart and kiss <laughs> and queen. I mean, that's, yeah, right, that was what heavy metal was called. Oh, that's and that's the way... That's exact, exactly, Ted Nugent, exactly. And that's the way people at the time 
would have lumped a band like Van Halen and they would have said that's a heavy metal. It's just more heavy metal. And so what I was trying to say and why I wrote the book was that at the time Van Halen came out in 78, that type of music, whether it be uh, Nugent, Kiss, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, that type of mountain, that type of music seemed to be declining. Disco, soft rock, punk rock, new wave seemed to be the genres that were 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 um, really poised to get bigger or to stay big. Disco was huge, obviously. Um, soft rock, I mean, Linda Ronstadt, Eagles, all that stuff was 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 big. Um, Southern rock. And so this idea of Van Halen coming along and having a platinum record was shocking to a lot of people, actually. I mean, it was shocking to everyone at Warner Brothers, really, except Ted, um, who thought, you know, these guys are, are talented. And so for me, I always see Van Halen as kind of a bridge between the late 70s and the early 80s stuff where the Motley Crue, the Van, uh, the Motley Dawkins, the Rats, they basically, you know, basically held the fort. And, I, you know, I talk about in the book as well, and I, I, I think people miss this as well as you know bands like acdc judas priest those bands were around scorpions were around were making records in the late 70s but none of their records were really big in 78 i mean in other words van halen's record did much mm -hmm. better commercially and so Definitely. you know i talk about it as in the book as pop metal i mean i'm not saying like you know van halen is like metallica i'm saying it's at the time people were going to categorize a band like van halen they were going to call them heavy metal they were going to call yeah. You know, they were going to call Kiss heavy metal. They were going to, again, we go through the whole list of Queen. They were going to call Queen heavy metal bands that we'd be like, well, Queen's not a heavy metal band. At the time, that was the way they were categorized. So that's the way I kind of saw, you know, Van Halen is kind of sticking out there in 78 as this band that nobody thought had a chance um, to do anything and to be super successful. Having a song like He Really Got Me and Jamie's Crying played on the radio, which is, again, like, it's like it's pop songs played with the flourishes of heavy metal, the guitar pyrotechnics the screams and so that's the way i kind of kind of saw rather than saying like you know van halen is like is like slayer i mean people were like van halen is nothing like slayer and i was like i'm like i'm not saying that it's not the argument well, of the book i mean you know well they do they get lumped in all the bands you just mentioned the doc doc in rat um you know motley crew i mean on all those bands would all say that van halen their success and popularity mm -hmm definitely helped all those other bands gain that L.A. glam rock metal scene. I mean, they're, they're definitely lumped in a part of all of that. There's no question about it. Um, so, you know, there's no doubt. But I was going to ask, so in regards to you, Greg, your personal uh, fate, we have this segment called Mount Rushmore of, yeah. which would be, you know, the Mount Rushmore of, you know, bands and albums and things. Sure. Who are your four, who's your Mount Rushmore of, rock, of bands? Oh God! Okay, in that so, genre, in that well, you can. I guess we can just open to any any bands you want to throw in there. But I'll do. You know, I'll do. Um, so I I would say you know ultimately my Mount Rushmore of bands would be Van Halen, The Doors. The Doors really, and I don't listen to the Doors a lot, but they were one of like the first band I actually really really got into. Um, this would have been around 1980, um, and I, I would you know uh, it's I have such divergent. You know, taste is hard for me to put too much. But if I'm going to get, put them on Mount Rushmore, I know that's politically controversial. Now I don't want to get too. I don't want to get too <laughs> off topic, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but uh, show segment becomes political. For us. Exactly, it's like super. It's we super just political. It was cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I'll put I'll put Sabbath and Zeppelin on there. You know, I'll put the Doors, Van Halen, Sabbath, and and Zeppelin on there, which I think you know. I mean, you give me a, a you know the Sabbath catalog, I'm happy. But you know, even even some of the '80s stuff, you give me the Zeppelin catalog, I'm happy. So, yeah. So what, why? So were you already a fan of like this rock music genre when you went to write Van Halen Rising, or was it was just like a interesting project that came across your desk, or how how would you describe? Oh yeah, tell, I was, you know, I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, no, I was a, yeah, I was a kid who um, you know saw Jump on MTV. I probably had heard, I always say, I, I know it, I heard Pretty Woman in the radio, but I was like, oh, whatever. You know, it was just like another song. It was like, and now something from Rick Springfield. It was just a song. <laughs> but when I saw the Jump video, that really was something that electrified me. And uh, then I got to see the 1984 tour. I was lucky to be able to see that. That was um, amazing. And that, you know, made me a huge fan. I, I had already started hacking around a guitar a little bit, but I tried to, you know, now I tried to really improve my guitar playing, which didn't work all that well. So, you know, it was, but it was something, you know, I didn't write Van Halen Rising until I was in my, what, my, my 40s, but, you know, I had been a fan for, for decades through all the, you know, the, the false reunions and the Van Halen 3 and the kind of all the, you know, the ups and downs of the band. I'd hung in there through, you know, just what, you know, like anybody, like, oh, what's Van Halen up to now? Oh, they just put out, you know, this album with Gary Sharon. What? You know, that whole type of thing. So it just was, you know, you know, Sammy Hagar's gone, you know, he's back. And so, um, you know, but it was for me, yeah, it was, it was a, I was a historian at that point and i saw this as a history that i thought needed to be told and i thought would be interesting to people to tell the basically the prehistory of this amazing band that was around playing parties and clubs for years before they were quote unquote discovered well i got into i can give you a little 30 second synopsis i got into van halen because i had an older brother so when van halen one came out i remember hearing you really got me and i remember my brother and his buddies wow. jamming it wow. and i remember i'll post it on my twitter my brother going to the van halen 2 concert they used to come to rochester every every mm-hmm. every may and little tidbit you probably knew the three videos yes. from rochester my father wouldn't let me go to the women and children first concert he wouldn't let me go to concerts until i was 13 so i he wouldn't let me go to the women's show, but my first Van Halen show was that fair warning. Oh, man. Yeah. That's the War Memorial? Rochester War Memorial, May 18th, 1981. Wow. And that's I, yeah, I know. I don't want to rub it in, but um, it was all that. And then Diver Down up at Carrier Dome and Dave's birthday, yep. Buffalo 84. And on July, I think July 9th or 7th, 1985, my buddy came running into Perkins late night eating, says, Roth leaves Van Halen, and things haven't been the same ever since. (laughs) So, yep, uh, yep. I always talk about that really quickly. I always talk about how, like, you know, when I saw Farm Aid, it finally hit home. It's like, you know, it's like your parents are going to get divorced or something, and you're like, oh, dad's never going to move out. And then suddenly he's like, got his bags and he's gone. You're like, it's happening. It's uh, actually happening. I was like, holy shit, it's actually. It's over. It's really over. 30 seconds or less, your take on a different kind of truth. I, you know, I think considering how old those guys were and how long they had um, not been in a studio together, I think it's a really good, solid album. I think it holds up well with the the original six albums. I mean, I don't think it's as good as, you know, I'd rank it seventh, obviously. But um, I think especially I would give it an enormous amount of 
cred to Roth's lyrics, which I thought were some of the the best of his career. Fantastic. They're really, really Fantastic. clever. If you read them, you're like, wow, this is, listen, they're really, really clever. I mean, the, and the, you know, the whole idea of the rehashed demo stuff. I mean, I've sort of like, you know, the deal is, as we just talked about, Van Halen always was going back to the well to kind of pull up old stuff. So I, I think, look, the idea of those guys getting in a room and putting, you know, rehearsing and coming up with 10 new songs, considering the icy relationship between Roth and Dave, I mean, that wasn't happening. So the fact that they got that album out and it did well and they toured behind it and it's going to be there forever. Great. Well, they did some new stuff. Uh, Honey Baby, Sweetie Doll, that was new. Um, Stay Frosty, that was new. Uh, there's a couple others, but here's a trivia question. Which song off of that is inspired from the Two Burritos and a Root Beer float segment from Two and a Half Men? <laughs> oh, I, uh, I, uh, I know. Wait a minute. Hold on. As is. There you go. Dr. Halen comes through. I was like, Final Jeopardy. I was like, wait. Yeah. I kind of had, had a brain freeze for a second, but I, I pulled it out. All right, we got to get out of here. But what uh, if uh, I got one more? <laughs> Sorry, just we, we could probably go all night for sure. That's yeah. how these things go with us. But uh, what if they did one big, massive Eddie's health, notwithstanding? Clearly, hope you know. Um, hopefully that ends up okay. Uh, but what if they just did one big, massive double album? Let David Lee Roth do side <laughs> side one, and Hagar do side two, and call it a career. I, I look. I'm. Never. Gonna I'm happen. somebody. I yeah. I don't think that'll ever happen. I'll tell you. i I have always been. For the last, well, I always, for the last three or four years of the mind that if they're going to go out, you know what, just like do out. the, like <laughs> just do whatever, do like the Sammy set, Dave set. I mean, I know it would never happen, but I would, you know, you know, some people will like, you know, will want to crucify me for saying that, but, it, it, you know, just put a capstone on the career, you know, just do, do it and just walk away with your head held high and, and say goodbye. Um, I just think, you know, um, <laughs> It's just, some, some people don't, unless you're really deep into metal, there's a band called Halloween from Germany. And yes. uh, Michael Kiske, which was one, you know, the original singer, after 20 some odd years, he came back and they did a huge big old tour with both singers. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Yeah, like it's pretty, yeah, check out, there's some really good YouTube uh, live shots of uh, pro shots of that uh, tour. And um, they just did all the songs and they wrote a couple new ones and it was really big, happy Halloween party. So, well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I think it's like always like for me, it's like even like now with like, I really like the Bush era anthrax stuff. I really, that's yeah, like, me too. I, yeah, totally. I like, like, I yes. love, you know, I liked the 80s stuff, but for whatever reason, the Bush era stuff really, I really connected with that. And then it's sort of like, we don't, you know, we don't do that stuff anymore. And it's, and I look, I get it. You know, you have different singers, different eras, and I get that. But there's sort of this whole thing like where we like bury the other era and like it doesn't exist, like the Tony Martin stuff. I'm, we're, I'm like, going through just I'm going through Spotify and I'm like there's only one to like where like where's the Tony Martin stuff you know Seven star? Just, the Tony yeah Martin. like yeah like headless cross come on now I want my headless cross on Spotify you know it's right it's like they just you know this idea of, like you bury the other era like oh it didn't happen or something I don't know it's just I, I just think you know I, I yeah we don't know what's gonna happen with Eddie's health but I really find it difficult to imagine Eddie and Alex agreeing to do like a 50 city tour next year with Roth or something like that. So like, you know, just, just kind of put a capstone on it and say, Hey, look, it was a great career. No one's going to begrudge them anything. They've done it all. Um, they've been at the top and you know, it's just like what Zeppelin did like the one night, just do the one thing and yeah. say goodbye. Love it. So, um, everyone could, uh, visit the metal mayhem ROC face or, um, website show notes and Greg, why don't you shoot out, uh, how people could get in touch with you. The books are, where uh, Amazon Van Halen News Desk. 
Yeah, their Amazon uh, has them. Van Halen News Desk, always uh, Van Halen Store has them. Um, if anyone wants a signed copy directly from me, you can go to templemanbook.com. And otherwise, follow me on Twitter at Greg Renoff. And uh, I'd love to connect with people that way and talk. And yeah, it'd be great. Appreciate this very much, guys. It was a lot of fun, as always. All right. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you. Uh, Crank Halen. And um, we'll talk to you on Twitter. <laughs> Greg, great job okay. with the books, by the way. You did a great job with an amazing band, so you did it a justice. So thank you so much. It is. I'm thank looking forward guys. to the third one. Take care. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys later. All right, take Bye. care, man. Bye. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DB Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.